0: Hey, it's Brian again from Mount Hope's Belmont campus. Merry Christmas, everybody. If you happen to be around this weekend, we have our Christmas Eve service this Saturday evening from 5 to 6 p.m. and service again on Christmas morning from 10 to 11 a.m. If you're around this area, we are at 51 Lexington Street in Belmont, Massachusetts. I hope you'll join us as we worship God. You can always find out more at our website, that's www.MountHope.org. We did something a little bit different with our sermon time this last week. We were talking about whether or not the story of Jesus' birth is historically accurate. And so we tried something a little bit new. I hope you like it, and I hope you listen closely. I think God has something he'd like to say to you. We are one week away from Christmas. And so, as a part of our sermon time, our message time together, I wanted us to have an opportunity to listen to the Christmas story. It's a story that uh, I think we feel like we kind of know all the pieces and how they all kind of fit together, but we don't often just take a moment to sit back and listen to it and consider the story for itself. So I'm going to invite Justin. Justin is going to come read for us. This is Justin Joseph, a member of our preaching team here at Bound Hope, and he's going to read the narrative to us and then I'll come up in a moment, have a few thoughts for you.
1: A reading from Matthew chapter two, the birth of Jesus Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ
2: came about. Wait a minute, I have a question. When you say the birth of Jesus came to be about, you say it like it's true. I mean, what makes it any more credible than, say, Santa, Rudolph, Frosty, Elf? Well, that's a good question. Pastor Brian, maybe you want to help us out with
1: this?
0: Yeah, we usually don't take questions from the audience. How did you get a microphone?
2: (laughs) It's under the seat.
0: Well, I'll, uh, I'll give you an answer, I guess, and then we'll, can we keep reading after that? Is that fine? Sure. All right. Well, how are they more credible than Twas the Night Before Christmas? I think sometimes we read them the same way. We sit down and we read Twas the Night Before Christmas. We sit down and we read the gospel story. I'll give you two thoughts that I have on this one. How do we know that what we read in Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, there's four gospels in the Bible. Maybe you know that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Only two of them really have Jesus' birth story in them, Matthew and Luke. I think there's two reasons why I believe that they're really credible. And these two reasons are the same reasons that the police would use if they're looking at a story that someone's telling them. Investigators, they would look for eyewitnesses, right? When they hear about something that's happened, they look for eyewitnesses and they make sure they check out all the details. Here's the truth about these gospel accounts that we have. These gospel accounts were written by eyewitnesses who saw what happened. And if they didn't see it personally, they were able to go to other eyewitnesses and get their reports. Pretty much all scholars believe, even if they're not followers of Jesus, that these gospels, Matthew, what we're reading right now, was written just a few decades after Jesus died. So think about this with me. The writer of Luke, Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke, Luke who was a doctor, he wrote two books of the Bible. He wrote the gospel of Luke and he he wrote the book of Acts, which talks about the early church. The end of the book of Acts ends with the apostle Paul in prison in Rome. We know that happened before the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. That means that Luke finished the book of Acts by 64 AD, let's say. Jesus died about 30 AD, 32, 34 AD. So we're talking 30 years after Jesus died, the Gospel of Luke is complete. And the Gospel of Mark, everyone agrees, was written before the Gospel of Luke. And plus the letters that Paul wrote, like Romans that we've been spending our time in and all the other letters he wrote, 1 and 2 Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, those were all written before the Gospels, like 48 AD to 60 AD. So there were many eyewitnesses around who could hear what was written, see what was written, and say whether or not it was true. The fact that these didn't get shouted down as fake news, the same way fake news is getting shouted down right now, points to me that there was validity to the story. So there's a lot of eyewitnesses telling these stories. Here's the second thing I would say. The details are important. And when it comes to the details of the gospel that we can verify, Matthew and Luke, places, people that were in charge, words that were used, they're all proven to be true. I'll give you one example, but there's many. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 6, Luke, he uses the word, he uses a word, politarch, it's a Greek word, and it means city authority. Now, many people used to say that Luke was probably written well after, hundreds of years after Jesus, because he or Acts was written hundreds of years after Jesus because it had this word that they couldn't find anywhere else. And just a few decades ago, in that area, they unearthed, an archway. And on the archway was that Greek word. In the time of the polytarchs, the archway says. From the first century, from the time of Jesus, it sits in a museum in England today. And anytime they unearth something like that, the gospel writers are proven to be accurate in their details. So between the eyewitnesses and the details, I think we can say that what we're reading here is what was written and what is true. Is that all right? Yeah, thanks. All right, we'll keep going. Appreciate all right, it. thanks.
1: May I continue?
2: Sure. Thank you. I'll show my way out.
1: His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus.
2: Wait a minute. I have another question. Oh, there you are. Um, Virgin birth? Uh, I'm no scientist but pretty sure that's not how it works. (laughs) I definitely
1: let Pastor Brian take this
2: one. Yeah, you don't want it? You can have it.
0: Here's what I'll say about this, and I don't know where you went, but here's what I'll say. I believe, and I think it's most logical to believe, that God created this world. We don't know anything that just comes out of nothing, right? If you see a microphone stand, you see this plant, you see those candles... Someone made those things. None of us would believe if I told you, I swear to you, these chairs weren't here a second ago, and then I blinked and all the chairs were here. And there's no explanation. They just showed up. We would never believe that. But some would have us believe that all the gas and matter and energy that they say created the world just was there. Just happened. It seems to me that if we refuse to believe that the things in the universe would never appear by chance, why would we believe that the universe would appear by chance? And so I believe that God put this into place. I believe God created this. One of my favorite defenders of the Christian faith is a man by the name of William Lane Craig. And if you've never read his book, Reasonable Faith, if you're interested in how science and faith go together, that's a good book to read. William Lane Craig was a skeptic for a long time. Didn't believe in God, didn't believe in in Christianity. And, once, and one of the reasons he said he didn't believe in it was because of the virgin birth. He said, how is it possible that Mary all of a sudden had a Y chromosome that she couldn't make on her own? And once he became a follower of Jesus, he said this, and I like this quote. He said, I came to realize that God created the whole world, and so for him to create a Y chromosome would be child's play. And so that's why I believe it's totally possible. If God created this world, then certainly he could do this. Is that all right?
1: All right, right, we'll continue. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. and of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route.
2: Wait a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt. One more question. You say all these places, like Bethlehem. I've heard about my whole life, like the nativity story. What makes it any more real than Atlantis? Well, did you want this one?
0: No, you didn't want it. You? If you go down uh, near the Belmont High School, it's after church today. You're feeling uh, like a good Sunday brunch. I have a place for you. It's a place called the Loading Dock here in Belmont. Maybe you've heard of it, it's been in the news recently. But the owner of the Loading Dock, his name's Fouad. he's a great guy. You go down there after church today, you can get brunch, you can meet Fouad. And Fouad and his entire family come from the town of of Bethlehem, where their family have lived for generations. Places like Jerusalem and Bethlehem, there's really no disputing that they existed in the time of Jesus. They exist today. They existed hundreds and thousands of years before Christ was born. They existed when Christ was born. Here's the one that really can trip people up. The town of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, the town that we hear about in this Christmas story, that's the one that critics sometimes will really harp on. Because there's mention of Nazareth a couple hundred years before Jesus, and there's mention of Nazareth a couple hundred years after Jesus, but some people will say it's never mentioned in between, and so maybe it didn't exist when Jesus was alive. It's interesting how when archaeology and and those sorts of studies happen in the Middle East, what is found continues to prove the details of the gospel true. True. Just within the last few decades, they've unearthed tombs around the area where Nazareth was supposed to have existed, all dating back to the first century. And the Jewish people would bury their, uh, the, the deceased on the edges of the town, and the tombs frame the outline of what would have been the community of Nazareth. Also, not too long ago, they unearthed an inscription. When the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD, all the priests at the temple were put to different areas in different towns. So in 70 A.D., one of the priests was relocated from Jerusalem, him and his family, to the village of Nazareth in 70 A.D. Just in 2009, there was an archaeological dig under the Sisters of Nazareth Covenant Convent. And underneath that convent, they found the ruins of a first century house filled with limestone pottery. And the people that used limestone pottery were the Jewish people because it was known, or the thought was, that limestone pottery would never become impure. And all the details of the gospel, all those historical details, they're proved true time and time again, which speaks more to their validity. Why, if Luke and Matthew were making this thing up, would they tie it to real people in real places and real rulers in real time periods? It would make it so much easier to debunk if they did that. If you want to fool people, if you want to make up a story, you make up everything. You make up all the details. If you're telling something real, you ground it with people, places, and time. And that's what the writers of the gospel do. These are real places where real people lived. And I'm probably just going to stay up here. Uh, I'm guessing. I don't know, but I'm guessing I might speak again. i Jimmy may have another question. Yeah.
1: Maybe we go on,
2: Jimmy. Sure, Thanks. Thank you.
1: and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi.
2: You know, if the king ordered all the, kids, all the boys to be killed, you'd think it'd be in every history book and not just the Bible, right? I mean, that's a pretty good question. Brian? <laughs> I, that is a good question. That
0: is a good question. And not uh, unsurprisingly, I have an answer to that question. Some people will point to this. They'll say, listen, Herod killing all the boys in Bethlehem, this is not anywhere else. It's not attested anywhere else outside of scripture. If Herod really did this, killed all boys two years and under in Bethlehem, wouldn't it be in every history book we have of the Roman time period? Well, this is why I, don't, I believe that the Bible's telling the truth, just even though it's not in all these other books. Herod the Great wasn't, was great because of his architectural abilities, because of what he built, Because the empire that he built, he was not great because of his character. He was deplorable in his character. In fact, Herod the Great murdered thousands of people in his own territory and region. Herod the Great was suspicious that his wife and his two sons were going to take over, so he had them killed. And over and over, and not just in the Bible, but in many other books of the time period, we hear about how ruthless and vicious and suspicious and angry Herod the Great was, So you've got this small village of Bethlehem with just a couple hundred people. And so the boys under two, the number of boys that were under two that were living there probably wasn't that large. And so it's a horrific act. It's a terrible thing that happened. But in the grand scheme of all Herod was doing in the region, and a group of people that literally, if you read the biographies about Herod from anybody, not just Christians, from anybody that would write about him, he, he was so ruthless. The people that lived under him were so fearful that this one just maybe didn't make the nightly news. And think about it. There's so much that happens in our world. There's so much that happens in this world that we don't hear about, horrific things that are happening that we just don't hear about. Did you know that last Saturday, 28 more people were killed in Syria? Did you know that over 100,000 Ukrainians are also refugees in Poland? I mean, there's things that are happening. There's been 700 homicides in Chicago this year. I don't know the details of any of them. and so. There's all of these things that even with our mass media and even with 24-hour news coverage, we don't necessarily have. It's interesting to me that this Bible story with all these correct historical details and people and places and facts, it's written off because it only exists there. But if it existed in one other history book written by Clement of Rome or Josephus or one of these other people, everyone would think that it's true. Let's not pretend that these guys are making up these stories. Herod really did this.
2: Good point. Thank you.
1: Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no the more.
2: Uh, I actually have one more question. Um,
0: I, I know, the balcony. That was impressive. <laughs> I wasn't
2: going to say anything, but I, I have like to ask. I this is the
0: last one. Is this the last one?
2: This might be the last one. Yeah, this
0: might be the last one. All right.
2: Um, you keep using this word prophet, but couldn't all... All those so-called prophecies have been written later after events happened to make it seem like they fit? Or couldn't Jesus just have manipulated events in his life to fulfill things that happened earlier?
0: It's a good question.
2: We read about all these
0: prophecies in the New Testament, and one of the biggest arguments that Jesus is the Messiah, come to save the world, is the fact that the Old Testament prophecies point to him as a Savior. There's over 300 uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about a Messiah that's coming. 300. So here's a couple of questions people say. Well, it's just a coincidence. It's a coincidence that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled some of these prophecies. Some mathematicians have worked out the odds. And one mathematician said for someone in their life to fulfill eight of these prophecies, the chances would be one in one, hundred, one, in one million billion. So there's a chance But it would be like filling the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, marking one of them and asking someone to walk through the state of Texas and randomly pick up the one silver dollar that has a mark on it. That's just eight. In fact, if you were going to fulfill 40 of these prophecies, Peter Stoner, he's a mathematician, he said that the chances are one and one trillion 13 times. So 1 in 1 trillion, 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 I can't even conceive of a number that looks like that. But those are the odds. For 40, and Jesus fulfills over 300. You know, some people ask, well, didn't the gospel writers just manipulate their stories to make it fit all the prophecies? And maybe that's a good, I think that's a good question, but here's why I would say I don't think that's true. Because the gospel writers and the disciples were in a unique position to know whether or not they were making up stories. They were in a unique position to know whether or not this was true. Whether Jesus really came, whether he really died, and whether he really rose from the dead, they're in a unique place to be able to know whether or not that's true. And all of them, scattered across the known world, without any contact with one another, no Twitter, no Facebook, no cell phones, nothing, are willing to suffer and die for this story. I don't think they made up a story that they were then willing to suffer greatly and die for. Some people would say, well, maybe Jesus manipulated his life to fulfill the prophecies, but there's so many prophecies that no one could control. The town where Jesus was born, how much ransom was paid for his murder, uh, the way that he was executed, the fact that the Romans did not break any of his bones, which was normal practice in an execution... There's all sorts of things that there's no possible way Jesus could have manipulated on his own. And some people would say, well, aren't you just taking the Old Testament prophecies out of context? And here's what I would say to that. I would say, I don't believe so. I've read them for myself. I've studied them for myself. I don't believe so. But here's what I would challenge you with. Go and read them. Go pick up the Bible. Go pick up the Old Testament Google where the prophecies are and read them and ask God himself. If you don't believe God is real, if you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, then what's the harm in doing this? Go read them and ask God himself whether these are pointing to Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, written hundreds of years before he was ever born. And see what happens.
1: The return to Nazareth. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are now dead. So he got up, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord.
0: I'm going to invite our worship team to come join us back on the stage. I'm going to launch into about an hour sermon here. That's not true. I just want to give you a couple of thoughts as we close this morning. This story of God sending his son to the earth as a baby in Bethlehem in a manger, the story of Jesus living his life, gathering disciples, showing his love by being willing to go to the cross for us, and then raising again after three days. This story that we can so casually tell on Christmas this story is true. And things that are true demand a response. If I was to have gone to Lori back in, in 2005 and I said to her, Lori, I love you, will you marry me? And she said back to me, I'm so happy to know that that's true so happy to know it's true that you love me and that you want to marry me. And there was zero response. That would have been devastating. That would have been so difficult to deal with. Because when something's true and something's out there, it demands a response. Demands a yes or no from us. And God's in that position. This story is true. And so many times we want to just live our lives like it's not true. But the story itself is true, and it demands a response from you and from me, whether or not we're going to say yes to God or whether or not we're going to say no to God and go our own way. Each of us has a sense inside of us, don't we? That this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's just not. That it's supposed to be better than it is. That things are supposed to work better than they are. That our life is supposed to be easier than it is. There's this peace, this peace of satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment that each and every one of us is trying to get right in our lives. And we'll do all sorts of things to try to fill that sense, that need for satisfaction, that need for purpose, that need for fulfillment. We will do all sorts of things to try to fill that gap inside of us. And so we'll get involved in great causes on this earth. And I think these causes are important. But we'll say to ourselves, if we can just figure out climate change, and we can just figure out uh, animal rights, and we can just figure out ending injustice, if we can figure all these things out, maybe then this hole that's inside of us, this feeling that the world is wrong and that things aren't the way they are supposed to be, if we can cure every disease, if we can do all of those things, then maybe we'll have finally gotten to the place... Where our souls and our hearts are satisfied. If we have enough money, if we look good enough, if we have the right group of friends, if there's enough social media, if we have all of these things in our lives, maybe, just maybe, we'll get to the point that we can satisfy that thing inside of us that just never seems to be satisfied. There's a guy in the Old Testament who wrote a book called Ecclesiastes, and he tried all these things. We think all these things are new. But he tried them all. Money, work, friendships, relationships, he tried them all. And he said trying to find satisfaction in those things is like trying to catch the wind. And some of us have experienced that, haven't we? We run after satisfaction, we run after fulfillment, we try to make everything right, but we just feel like it's trying, we're just trying to catch the wind and we can't come up with the thing that's going to satisfy our souls, See, the problem is you and I have a debt that we cannot pay. That the reason the world is the way it is is because I've sinned and you've sinned and together we've sinned corporately. That God put things in place and we went our own way. And the result of that is this break between us and God that leaves us searching and leaves us unsatisfied and leaves us unfulfilled. And we are trying to get a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment from things in this world that were never designed to fill that hole. The great author and thinker, C.S. Lewis, he said this, he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find inside myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I was made for another world. You know, the answer to this problem that you and I have, this debt we can't pay, this satisfaction thing we can't get right, this purpose and fulfillment thing that just never seems to fill up in our lives no matter what we try, and we've run from thing to thing to try to fill it up. The answer to that issue, it did come from another world. That God sent his son, born in a manger, and it deserves a response From you and from me. Is it a yes? Is it a God yes? I believe that that's true. I believe that you sent your son. I believe that I've sinned against you. I believe that the only way that that's going to be fixed. That I can have a relationship with you. That I can find satisfaction in my soul. Is if I put my trust in you. Or is it a no? No thanks God. I'm going to keep chasing the wind. I'm going to keep going my own way. I'm going to keep trying to figure out this thing on my own. I like the way the psalmist David said it in Psalm 107, verse 9. He said, the Lord satisfies the longing soul. And if you're here this morning and your soul is unsatisfied and you are longing, let me tell you, there is a debt that you cannot repay on your own, a debt that you and I need someone else to come in and pay on our behalf. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He even paid the debt that I can't pay so that I might have a restored relationship with God that my soul might be satisfied in Him. And maybe today's the day for you that you would find satisfaction in your soul through Christ, that you would put your trust in Him. Maybe today's the day that you've forgotten that this is true and you've run off and tried to find it some other place and maybe today's the day that you're reminded I can only find it through Christ and you're going to come back. Maybe today you know this is true and you'll just say amen. But wherever you are, I hope this truth resonates with you this morning. That the only way our souls will ever be satisfied, the only way we'll ever find true fulfillment, true purpose, is to respond to the truth of Jesus Christ and say yes to God. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we end? And I'm going to give you some time in this moment right now. If you want to respond to God and talk to him, this is your time. Your own heart and your own mind to respond and say, I believe. i to put my trust in you, begin that relationship with you, find satisfaction in you. Or maybe you're in a place this morning that you would come to God and say, God, I, listen, I don't know if I believe, but if it's true, would you show me? If this all is true, would you somehow reveal it to me? God, I thank you that you do provide satisfaction for our souls. And God, I pray that this Christmas, that the Christmas story, the coming of Jesus Christ would be so much more than just a story that we read like every other story we read this time of year, but that the truth of this story would penetrate our hearts and penetrate our minds, that we might live our lives for you, that we might find satisfaction in you, that we might dive into your word, dive into the Bible and find out for ourselves whether or not this thing is really true. And God, I pray that as we spend time in your presence, As we worship you and follow you, God, I pray that you would do what only you can do and that you would bring satisfaction and fulfillment to our souls. We thank you for it and we worship you, Father, in Jesus' name. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m., or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.